Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books on some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine, or culture. The sacred scriptures are the Word of God. But, as the second letter of Peter, chapter 3, verse 16 says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Consequently, the interpretation of sacred scripture has always involved difficulties and debates. These have become more intricate in modernity. The Protestant Reformation disputed the normativity of tradition and the Church's magisterium in the interpretation of Scripture. The development of historical research has provided an array of new techniques and insights. Unfortunately, these have often been divorced from the rule of faith and wedded to rationalist premises instead. What then are the proper principles that allow us to hear what God is really saying to us in sacred scripture? On the one hand, the church teaches us to give priority to the literal or historical sense of scripture, taking into account the hagiograph's intention and modes of writing. On the other hand, as Pope Benedict XVI says in his post-synodal exhortation, Verbum Dei, since scripture must be interpreted in the same spirit in which it was written, the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation indicates three fundamental criteria for an appreciation of the divine dimension of the Bible. First, the text must be interpreted with attention to the unity of the whole of Scripture. Nowadays, this is called canonical exegesis. Second, account is to be taken of the living tradition of the whole Church, and finally, third, respect must be shown for the analogy of faith. In this episode, Dr. Jeffrey L. Morrow will explain the Church's principles of biblical interpretation and take us through some of the best books in them. Dr. Jeffrey L. Morrow is Professor of Theology at Immaculate Conception Seminary School of Theology at Seton Hall University. A Jewish convert to Catholicism, he specialises in the history of modern biblical interpretation. Among his publications are Jesus' Resurrection, A Jewish Convert Examines the Evidence, A Catholic Guide to the Old Testament, co-authored with Jeff Cavins and others, Murmuring Against Moses, The Contentious History and Contested Future of Pentateuchal Studies, co-authored with John Bergsman, and Modern Biblical Criticism as a Tool of Statecraft, co-authored with Scott Hahn. Dr. Jeffrey Morrow, thank you and welcome. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Most Catholics are not biblical scholars. Nevertheless, they need to apply the principles of biblical interpretation as they listen to scripture and the liturgy or read it for themselves. Do they pick them up connaturally from the order of readings and the liturgical prayers, or do they need to be taught about them more explicitly? Well, I think both are the case, both and. As a good Catholic, I have the kind of analogical sense. In this case, on the one hand, I think we as Catholics have the benefit of how the texts are organized at the liturgy. And when we attend liturgy, there's in a sense a privileged uh, means of interpretation. We hear Old and New Testament read together, so we, it forms a natural connection where we can interpret the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old. At the same time, I think it's helpful that and to learn to interpret 
scripture from the heart of the church. And that's not natural. We have to learn how to do that. And before we come to recommended readings, could you list the major principles of sound biblical interpretation? Sure. From a Catholic perspective, uh, the major principles of sound biblical interpretation are really laid out, I think, very nicely in the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, where we, we need to take the dual authorship of Scripture very seriously, that God is the primary author of Scripture, right? And the human sacred authors are, um, in the Thomistic sense, the instrumental authors. They're both real authors. I think that's one of the things the Second Vatican Council draws out nicely. So because of that, we need to understand the um, the genre, the historical context as best as we can for the, the literal level. But we also need to understand that Scripture must always be read as as Dave Verbum, Vatican II's dogmatic constitution and divine revelation tells us, in the same spirit in which it is written. So we have to understand that this is also written by God fundamentally. And so in that sense, there's three major criteria that Dave Verbum, the Vatican II, lays out for us that we, we see later in the papal magisterium of Pope St. John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI <clears throat> articulated quite clearly. And that is that we need to read the Bible in light of the rule of faith. OK, so that, that is the dogmatic traditions of the church. What the church has re- told us is revealed as true. What we know about God, what God has told us about himself. The church doctrine does not make it more difficult to understand scripture, as as many scholars would say, unfortunately, rather it clarifies. So that we know that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit actually helps us understand the Bible better. So that's one principle. All right. The second is, is canonically, we need to read the Bible in light of the whole. So it means that the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation and everything in between, they relate to each other. I guess this goes counter to a lot of what we learn in the classroom and from a lot of scholars where you want to read every book just by itself. And maybe you assume that these books started in as different books or different texts and we need to read them in these isolated, discrete forms. But the reality is the church says we need to read them in a, as a whole, the Bible as one divine book uh, with its differences and variances in mind, but in light of each other. And then the third is in light of the living tradition of the church. So the magisterium, we believe, is given the Holy Spirit to help guide us, to help guide our reading of Scripture. So all three of those principles need to be taken into account when we read the Bible. Some documents also talk about the analogy of the faith. Right. How does that, is that the the same as one of the principles you've stated? Yeah, I use the term rule of faith, but the way that Pope Benedict XVI uses them is somewhat interchangeably. And it's it's in light of the faith that has been revealed to us, in light of the dogmatic tradition. Building upon the distinction that St. Paul draws between the letter and the spirit in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, the Church Fathers identify four meanings that a passage from Scripture may have. Besides its literal or historical sense, it may have any of three spiritual senses, the allegorical, insofar as it's a type that figures Christ and his church, the moral or tropological, and the anagogical. Does the doctrine of the fourfold sense of scripture encapsulate the various principles of biblical interpretation? It, it does implicitly, I believe, especially the first the first ones. I would actually, I would uh, say that when we look at the church fathers, they have a, a diversity of interpretations and technically, there's really two senses, literal and spiritual. As you mentioned, the spiritual <clears throat> excuse me, is then subdivided into three, typology or allegory, 
tropology, moral sense, and then anagogical. Um, that really, there's a diversity, there's much more going on with the church fathers, but St. Thomas Aquinas helpfully in the Summa Theologiae helpfully identifies the, what's called the, the fourfold sense in that in that way. And, and in that, the literal sense encapsulates a lot of what we're dealing with, with the human level or the human authorship, divine as well. And then typology is helpful, I think, especially for that, um, this, this, all the spiritual senses, but especially typology shows us, in a sense, what's going on with the connection between the old and the new at a spiritual level. And I think what's really important to point out there, it's not clear in the documents, but is that typology is not some literary sense that the text, the authors have in mind. Rather, it's how God writes history. God writes history typologically. Typology is fundamentally historical at one level. That's why it's in scripture. That's why we can read scripture typologically because God writes history typologically. And so it does, in, in that fourfold sense does at some level, not explicitly, but implicitly contain um, or assume, rather assume what we were talking about, the criteria for understanding scripture as a Catholic. In modern biblical criticism as a tool of statecraft, you and your co-author Scott Hahn argue that modern biblical scholarship has often been informed by naturalism and political interests. How did you come to this realization before undertaking this research project? Oh, gosh, it's a long story. I'll try to be brief. Scott and I came to it separately. I was a, a doctoral student and he was a scholar already. Um, and, and we both did work on our own. He did a, an earlier work with Benjamin Weicker, uh, Politicizing the Bible, which took place a few hundred years earlier than what we dealt with. And I had been doing work in the same time period. So we... I'll just give my story. I don't, I'm not going to elucidate Scott's, but from my, my own perspective, I already saw historical problems, just historical, with a lot of the assured results, quote unquote, of modern biblical criticism, just on historical grounds, archaeologically, etc. And so then I, I came to the question of, well, why does history seem to support the Bible so much better than the so-called historical critical scholars? What's going on here? And so I started studying the history of scholarship. And as I began to study the history of modern biblical scholarship, I discovered, wait a second, most of these modern biblical scholars see what they're doing as just pure science, objective, neutral. But they were not disinterested scientists. At the earliest stages, they had political interests. They had theological interests. They had philosophical interests. And so their scholarship was as or more biased than the sorts of theological interpretations that they were arguing against. And so I started to see the ways in which their own political commitments supporting the various state figures um, that they were they were supporting uh, shaped the methods that were implicitly skeptical. Right. So I guess in general, this is an oversimplification. But in general, if the tradition said one thing, the scholars tried to undercut that and they were they looked for a method to help rather than rather than trying to figure out what actually happened in developing a method. They were trying to um, support specific political ends. This is particularly the case in the 17th century, but it becomes clear as you walk through the history. And the rise of modern biblical criticism has prompted the popes to issue a series of important documents on the interpretation of sacred scripture. Foremost yes. among these are Leo XIII's Providentissimus Deus from 1893 and Pius XII's 
Divino Aflante Spiritu from 1943. There was also the Pontifical Biblical Commission's The Interpretation of the Bible in the Church from 1993. Why, though, does the Second Vatican Council's dogmatic constitution and divine revelation, Dei Verbum, the Word of God, top your list? Oh, gosh. Well, may I make a distinction first between sure. those documents? Okay, so first of all, Leo Thirteenth. this is, I'll, I'll tell you why. So Leo Thirteenth document is very important. This is the first, it's the first magisterial document to come out from the Pope on, on Scripture. I would distinguish Leo Thirteenth and Pius Twelfth on the one hand and the 1993 Pontifical Biblical Commission's document on the other because the PBC's document is not magisterial. The, the Pope Paul the St. Paul VI removed the Pontifical Biblical Commission from um, an arm of the magisterium in the 19, I believe it was 1972, but it was in the 1970s. So the last document from the PBC, from the Pontifical Biblical Commission, that actually was part of the magisterium, is its 1964 Santa Mater Ecclesia on the historical uh, reliability of the Gospels. Um, so on the one hand, Pius, as a Leo XIII's Providentissimus Deus, is really important. It deals with another area of my research, and that is the Catholic modernist controversy. It's before modernism gets condemned, but it's at that cusp there. He's writing primarily against somebody I work on, Alfred Loazi, who gets excommunicated under Pope St. Pius X in 1908. So 1893's document is trying to understand how can we use history and archaeology in the literal sense, really? How do we, how do we understand these things to help in a sense, defend against all the skepticism that's entering not just biblical scholarship, but Catholic biblical scholarship. And it's very important in that. And he goes through and says that the interpretation of the church fathers is very important here. Pius XII is looking at this 50 years later in 1943 and saying, OK, so what's going on here? Well, some people have gone a little too far in over-spiritualizing um, interpretation and neglecting history. But, the, but God entered history in Jesus Christ to the incarnation. This is also very important. And so what he wants to do is talk about the good things that history can do as well. And they're very important documents that go together. And I think what I think is so important about De Verbum, Vatican II's document, is that it very succinctly captures the tradition of the church that came before, both Providentissimus Deus as well as Pius XII's Divino Fonte Spiritu, and those early, you know, all of the what the Pontifical Biblical Commission is doing at that time in those years, as well as the rich tradition of the church that came before St. Augustine, etc. And so I think in six short chapters, Vatican II captures the tradition of the church. It shows how beautiful church teaching is on scripture. And that's kind of why I, I think that's so important. And I think it should be a touchstone for all future Catholic biblical interpretation. The Pontifical Biblical Commission's document is very good. I think there, there are some areas in 1993, that document is very good. Some, there's some areas where it's really more relevant for scholarly discussions than for popular Catholics. What the Pontifical Biblical Commission uh, has become after Pia, sorry, Saint Paul, Paul, Pope St. Paul VI reconstituted is, is it is now and has been since then uh, an advisory commission for um, the dicastery and the, uh, the doctrine of faith, what used to be called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, and, and so it's really an advisory commission at some level for scholars. So I'm not sure that every Catholic needs to delve into that massive, you know, document. And just as Pius V followed up on the Council of Trent by issuing a compendium of the Catholic faith, the Roman Catechism, John Paul II did likewise by following up in Vatican II with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Does it add anything to Dave Verbum's teaching on biblical oh, interpretation? 
It does. And it's I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I really do believe that the, the catechism of the Catholic Church, it, it really is, in a sense, a catechism of Vatican II in light of Pope St. John Paul II's writings. Um, it does in this section, particularly in paragraphs 115 to 119. It actually deals with what you had mentioned earlier about the fourfold sense of Scripture, the two senses, literal and spiritual, and then the three subdivisions of the spiritual in a helpful way. So Vatican II did not actually deal explicitly with the, the interpretation of the church fathers in that way. Um, so Dave Verabum helpfully lays out, you know, what is the word of God? You know, and how do we understand how we have received it in tradition and scripture? And then it tells us about the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then the interpretation of and the role of sacred scripture in the life of the church. And what the catechism does here is it uses that as a basic outline. And it walks through then how are we to understand what scripture is and how we are to interpret it as Catholics. And then within that, it explicitly includes this reference to the way in which Christians in the earliest centuries and in the medieval period very fruitfully understood scripture and applied it to our lives. And that really is that what we call the fourfold sense of scripture, the literal. And then the spiritual is just based on the literal. The typological, how we see the old and new relating, how we see Jesus, the church and the sacraments hidden in the old and made manifest in the new, as St. Augustine eloquently put it, eloquently put it. And then the tropological, the moral, how do I apply this to my life? How do I become a saint, a corresponding to God's grace from reading scripture? And how does this orient me towards heaven in the anagogical? And it's helpful here to understand, you know, not every passage will have all of these senses. All of the passages will have their literal sense. What is the sense of the words? And all of them will have a spiritual sense. They may not all have an anagogical sense. They may not all have uh, an explicit reference to heaven. But um, but it's very helpful. I think that's I think that's probably the best way in which it adds to what Vatican II did on the interpretation of Scripture. Your second recommended reading is Pope Benedict XVI's post-synodal exhortation on the Word of God in the life and ministry of the Church. Verbum Domini. What does it add to the previous magisterium on biblical interpretation? Well, that's a great question. I think that is, I think Pope Benedict's document, Verbum Domini, is, it's certainly the longest formal magisterial document on sacred scripture that's actually from the magisterium. Um, and I think it's the most important, certainly since Dei Verbum. What it does is, I believe it, it most importantly, it, it expands what Dei Verbum did. That's the most important area, I think, is it t- it takes De Verbum, Vatican II's document, as a starting point, and then it builds on that. Uh, the other thing I think that's really important is it, while respecting um, Vatican II's and the prior papal discussions on the role of modern biblical interpretation, he really recognizes some of the problems and the philosophical dangers of kind of skeptical interpretation that has become commonplace among scholars. And so he pushes against that a little bit more than you have um, in prior papal teaching. You have hints of it in uh, the Pontifical Biblical Commission's 1964 document before Vatican II. You have a little bit more of it, a little bit of it in Divino Flante Spiritu, Pius XII, and more of it in Providentissimus Deus by Leo XIII. But while being very open to modern science, history, he urges caution, which has been a hallmark of both his work on Scripture as Pope, Pope Benedict XVI, and his prior work on Scripture as Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, as an important theologian of the church prior to becoming Pope. 
The other area I think he really hits on that's really important is to, to I would add, and that is on the liturgy. This, the important role of the liturgy as really the, the most important living place for scripture. Scripture and the liturgy go together. It's an intrinsic part of the sacred liturgy. It orients us towards the sacraments. And that's important because that is our primary encounter with God. We are never closer to God than we are in the sacraments before heaven, right? Because we are receiving his very life in the sacraments and especially in the Eucharist where we encounter the living Christ. And so the scripture and the liturgy prepares us for that encounter. And then it prepares us to correspond to the grace we receive in the sacraments as we leave, whether we're leaving the confessional or whether we're leaving mass to make, to help correspond to God's grace and make them operative in our lives. And I think Verum Domini really hits that well. And the last thing I would say is he really brings up the lives of the saints, the way saints like St. Teresa of Calcutta, St. Francis of Assisi, and all the other saints he mentions explicitly, incarnated scripture in their lives. They give us, in a sense, an authentic interpretation of scripture that at some level is, is more authentic than a simply intellectual interpretation. We get to see what does it mean to love the poor in St. Teresa of Calcutta and St. Francis of Assisi in a very real way that is is more real and, and a more important model for us than a merely intellectual exercise. So I think that's the most important things that he does there, builds upon Vatican II. In a certain sense, that last point is underlined particularly well in the Eastern churches, where they have the icons of the saints who embody what the meaning of scripture and also their insistence that the true theologian is the saint. True exegete in that sense is the saint. I believe that's true. Thank you for listening. To read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as one dollar, one pound or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again and God bless.